like put me in a book festival and I am hilarious. Put put me in a comedy club and I'm not that funny. Because <laughs> in comparison to other authors, I'm like extraordinarily funny. But in comparison to comedians, I'm not that funny. It gets better because it has to get better. My name is Sophie Hagen. I'm a stand-up comedian and you are listening to the Made of Human podcast, uh, in short, Mopod, M-O-H-P-O-D. It's a podcast in which I speak to people that I really like about life. And um, and I'm trying, I guess I started this by, I wanted to find out how to do life and then it turns out no one has any idea. So now it's all about uh, me feeling less alone with people who also have no idea how to do this. Uh, this week I'm speaking to John Ronson. The John Ronson. I'm speaking to the John Ronson, one of the nicest people, and um, and I'm so ex- I'm s- excited about you listening to this. First, I'm going to ramble for a tiny bit. If you're new to the podcast, it's what I do. It's and hey, it's my party, and I'll cry if I want to, and oh, I want to. Uh, first, I just quickly want to say I'm on tour with my new stand-up show, Dead Baby Frog. It's all over the UK and Denmark, uh, in which the shows will be English. Uh, I'm also going to be at the Soho Theatre in London in March. And the whole tour is anxiety-safe. It has gender-neutral toilets and wheelchair access all around. There is also a trigger warning, which is that this show has mentions of emotional and physical abuse. Go to sophiehagen.com to find out what I mean by all of that, to get more information and to get tickets and uh, why you're there do sign up for my newsletter so you'll get all the the hot goss the that's hot gossip uh also there's a new thing i'm doing live episodes of the made of human podcast it has been so much fun so far i uh you heard an episode last week so i really hope you like that uh i'm recording this before i get to see your your reactions so i'm, I'm very curious about what you ended up thinking uh if you want to get tickets for the uh, for the live shows Go to mopod.com, M-O-H-P-O-D, and sign up for the newsletter. Then you'll be the first people to know. There's now a Made of Human podcast newsletter, which is very exciting. So sign up for that um, and uh, or see if there are tickets on the way. It sells out very quickly because it's only like a 35-seater room. But so far it's been fun and you have been incredible audiences. On sophiehagen.com, you can buy my show, my last year's show called Shimmer Shatter, uh, com forward slash shop for just five pounds or more if you want. It's a show about being an introvert and not liking people on nightclubs. Now, before I let you listen to this episode, it meant, listen, it meant a lot talking to John Ronson. I met him when I was in New York. I feel like we may talk about this on the podcast. Um, him and Maeve Higgins, who is absolutely amazing, and can I just suggest that you go and listen to Des Bishop's podcast. I think it's just called the Des Bishop podcast, uh, where he speaks to Maeve Higgins. It is, she's incredible. So go and listen to that. Um, and before, uh, I, it, so I was in New York and uh, him, Jan Ronson, and Maeve Higgins, they have a show uh, that they run. Oh, they ran. I don't think they, he says in the podcast they don't do it anymore. But I got to perform with them being the hosts. And um, another person on the lineup was Stoya, the, the porn star Stoya. And she was, of course, nice and brilliant and all of that. And I think it was three or four days before she outed James Dean, the porn star James Dean, as, as a rapist. And it was such a surreal... I, you, you know how you get all... Like, you center yourself. You make everything about you. And I was just... When I saw she did that, which she did in the coolest of ways, 
she just tweeted it and then went offline. I love that. And when she did that, I was like, wow, I, I sat next to her four days ago. And I just, I like to think that it was on her mind, her going, I'm going to fucking destroy him. And she did. And she, anyway, so she's one of the dream guests, of course, to have on. But also John Ronson. It's John Ronson. So before I let you listen to the actual episode, we shall do this week's Acts of Disobedience, which is where uh, our listeners uh, email in and tell me when they last stuck it to the man and they did something radical and they, they resisted. They resisted the, the whatever patriarchy, whatever system there is. So this uh, week's listeners, listeners are called Anahid and David, and this is what they wrote. On the last leg, during the discussion of Harvey Weinstein, Adam Hills, whom we usually adore, referred to Weinstein as Fat and Jabba the Hutt. So we sent this to him on Facebook. Dear Adam Hills, we are huge fans for many years now, and like you and your colleagues, we were horrified by the breaking of the Weinstein story. Too many questions to even list succinctly, but let's be grateful that all that nasty, smelly, vile stuff is being aired publicly. But... We were pretty horrified by your descriptions of Weinstein, too. While he deserves nearly anything we can throw at him, making fun of his body is surely something that you, individually, and the last leg as a program, should be the very last people to do. As proud, lifetime fat people, we and thousands of others like us have fought to make people see us simply as people. Your fight to get people to stop looking at the missing calf, while well, ours is to get people to stop looking at our bums and bellies and boobs, our double chin and elbow dimples and cankles. What earthly difference does Weinstein's body make to the issue in question? And lest you think you're just calling him ugly, stop and think in whose eyes. Because as ugly as his behavior was and is, we'd hate to see you stooping down to his level. Anahid and Dave. I think that's such a good point. I really love that they did that because, or that you did that, Anahid and Dave. Um, It's the same with, Donald Trump, isn't it? When people start saying, oh, Donald Trump's so fat, and you're like, that's not hurting Donald Trump. That's hurting all the fat children who have to listen to that. So uh, thank you. Oh, they added this at the end. It was scary to stand up to Adam Hills, both because we respect him so much and because he could tear us to shreds in seconds. But your show keeps reminding us that his that this work needs to be done and we should be doing it. So we did. Thanks for the inspiration. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I've met Adam Hills a few times. He's, of course, lovely. And, and we're all like we can all I'm just happy that you said this to him because even it doesn't it's irrelevant that I've met him. Um, he still needed to be told that. So, yes, uh, if I ever get him on the podcast, uh, maybe I'll mention it to him. Yeah, I'm going to try and get him on the podcast. Anyways, you can submit your own act of disobedience on madeofhumanpodcast.com where you can also buy a Mopat t-shirt. Uh, and can I just thank the people who are donating to this podcast because that means everything. You can go to mopat.com and give a one-off donation or you can sign up for patreon.com forward slash mopat and become a patron where you give a certain amount um, of dollars per episode and... Uh, and then at the end of every month, it just deducts automatically from your card. It won't feel like anything is missing. Usually, you know how it goes with direct debits. It just kind of happens. But for me, it makes the world of difference. It means everything, especially at the moment when I'm going through like the worst time and it's really hard. And I now get to do this instead of having to go outside and, and, and speak to large uh, groups of uncomfortable people at nightclubs and, and do horrible 
things I don't want to do because I would rather just be at home and kind of self-care and stuff. So then you're really helping me out uh, by doing that. So thank you so, so much. Um, if you give more than $5 per episode, uh, at the end of the podcast, you get a shout out. Uh, and uh, so get excited about that. But first, please enjoy this episode with the incredible John Ronson. Hey, Made of Human podcast listener that lives in Ireland and will be around Dublin January 13th. Yeah, I'm talking to you. I'm Alison Svittle. Uh, I'm a former podcast guest on Made of Human. The episode is called I Licked a Poster of Aaron Carter. Me and Sophie Hagen are going to be doing a gig in Vicker Street January 13th. You can buy tickets at Ticketmaster. It's a perfect Christmas present if you want to confuse someone if they don't know me. But um, yeah, I'm just, it's it's a gig advert. Please come to my gig. That's all I can say to convince you. I'm, I'm not going to beg you. Okay? I'm not going to beg. Bye. And it could have like, I could have been like, basically like paralysed for months or okay and i just oh, happened no. to walk down the okay road wow i know thank god did he tell you why it happened no it's happened to me before it's just you know my posture oh yeah you know what it's like that's a uh, bag up in case that one it, it's okay. never really fucked up but it's just in case okay again phobias and stuff yeah um, i'm um i'm rife with phobias yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you want to go through them one by one? Um, well, my main phobia is is getting sick before doing shows or getting sick at all. Yeah. I had glandular fever twice when I was a kid. And I believe, but I'm not sure if there's any medical evidence to back it up, that that whenever people who've had glandular fever get colds, they get it worse than other people. <laughs> <laughs> But so, yeah, that's my main phobia right now is am I going to get a cold? Because I'm about to do six shows, yeah. seven shows. And am I going to get sick? And there's nothing worse, like nothing worse. One time I gave a talk in Oswestry in Shropshire and I shook. Basically, I, I did a talk. It was like 200 people, did a talk, uh, signed everybody's book, shook everybody's hand and then immediately put my hand in my mouth and... <laughs> Why? Why did you put your Because I just didn't. Like, I just didn't think it through, and <laughs> so one of those two hundred people gave me, you know, their germs, and I was really sick for the for the rest of the trip, and and ever since then I've just become like obsessed with with not getting sick before going on stage. I mean, it sounds like it's justified if you just shove your fingers in your mouth all the time. Well, I do it all the time anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Is that your thing? It's out of your mouth. Can I show you? Look at my look at my little oh, finger. Oh, you bite your nail. Oh, you bite your your, your yeah. skin. Yeah. What I, is that like? An anxiety thing? I guess. Oh. I've been doing it since my twenties. Oh really? Yeah. Do you not? Uh, both fingers. Lock my other one as well. Oh wow. Yeah, I just bite. I bite them. I've got big lumps on my two little fingers. And is that? Do you do it at specific times, or is it just? Uh, um, my wife would say that I do it all the time, and it's. It's unbecoming. It's unbecoming. Yeah, sometimes I sometimes do it with both fingers at once. Wow. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, well, I think now it's justified, isn't it, being scared of getting sick? Mm. <laughs> Especially uh, when you're in big... You can live in New York. Yeah. And now you're in London. Like, that's big... That's the... 
that's the place where you get all the yes. sicknesses. Uh, this time of year, just when the weather's changing. It's it's all the worst. I was actually, I, I'm so obsessed with it that I was actually thinking today I shouldn't do any shows in or in the autumn anymore because oh, wow. that's when you're most likely to get sick. I should only do shows in the other, during the other seasons. I mean, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think I'm like, yeah, this is probably right. I think I'm at that point now. Where I'm like, yeah, well, it makes you feel scared. Yeah. <laughs> Quit. <laughs> <laughs> I think so. Life's too short. But you don't want to give up like too much. I'm, I'm, you know, I'm giving up a lot. I gave up, you did my, my show with, that I do with Maeve yeah. Higgins in New York, in Brooklyn. And I gave that show up. Oh, um, yeah? Yes, because... I was because even though like pretty much the shows were always really really good once in a while a guest didn't do well on stage and I felt like a massive sense of responsibility for the audience's feelings not the person not the person on stage who was dying I was like I just felt annoyed with them (laughs) (laughs) I felt really upset for the feelings of the people in the audience so and that was just it's ridiculous it's like it's it's a ridiculous that's a phobia basically yeah I I get what you mean it's a a kind of anxiety I guess because I host a show in London called Sophie Hagen is alone with other people which is like an open mic for stand-up but I get it both ways I'm like right okay the audience you have to be really nice to this person because i don't want them judging my audience right. for being a bad audience and then the comedian i'm like please don't offend them please be really nice to this. So right. i mean it, i totally get that anxiety of like oh please everyone be happy yeah it's like a, it's like being a party planner uh, Maeve wasn't like that though so we so on the very rare occasions because as I say like most of the time these shows and we did them for like four years it was called I'm new here and honestly like 95% of the time it was really good but on the 5% that it wasn't um you know Maeve would be backstage just like shaking it off because like you know she's a comedian and some some nights are good some nights are bad and that's just life but I would be backstage with like knots in my stomach of like this is terrible you know how can we get this person off stage and the people in the (laughs) (laughs) people in the audience have probably got babysitters and (laughs) do you never is that a kind of unusual way of thinking would you say no I mean it's, I think it's unusual for a lot of comedians, but that's what I was about to say. Like you're, you're mm. so you. What 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 what's your titles? You're an author. Uh, you're uh, what's the new? What, what's um, your title? Your description. I guess I'm a. I don't. I mean, because you're funny. Because you could. But are you are you? Because you're not a stand-up comedian. No, but I'm you, definitely not a stand-up. But you're funny on stage when you. Yeah. Um, I always think I'm, I'm when, like, put me in a book festival and I am hilarious. Put, put me in a comedy club and I'm not that funny. Because <laughs> in comparison to other authors, I'm, like, extraordinarily funny. But in comparison to comedians, I'm not that funny. <laughs> so you're a... Uh, I think so, I'm probably, like, it's kind of... I, I wish it was yeah. a less pretentious word, but I'm basically kind of a storyteller because, oh, yeah. I, I mean, I'm a writer, basically, but I also do, like, podcasts. I've just done this exactly. series called The Butterfly Effect, and and that's not just writing, that's doing this. It's talking yeah. to people and having adventures. And I'm sort. I'm basically a journalist, but I also write oh, yeah. screenplays, so, so that's fiction, so... The the one thing that all of these things have in common is is it's telling stories. So yeah. I guess I'm a storyteller. So does that come from? Have you always been a storyteller? 
No, I was uh, I was a pretty, you know, banal and not, you know, kind of very interesting child. It came, honestly, it came from a place of, uh, it came from a sort of pragmatic place because I was working with bands. I lived in Manchester and I was working with bands and... I was managing this band called the Manfred Del Monte and I'm pretty certain that they would have done incredibly well with a different manager. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't, I just wasn't a good manager. But to to pay the rent, I was writing for the local listings magazine, City Life. And I was really good at writing and, and I didn't want to be a writer back then because it just felt, you know, it was lonely and... And back then, not anymore, but back then I enjoyed being with people, <laughs> you know, because I was young and um, I didn't want to be all on my own, you know. And, and so when people said to me, you should be a writer, I resisted it for a while because I just thought that's a terrible life. But it was the only thing I was any good at. And like having children, you don't just love them the minute they come out, you fall in love with them and... And uh, that's what happened with me in writing. I fell in love with it. So were you? would you say you were an extrovert and you're an introvert now? Or is that too broad? I was, I was more extroverted then. Now I'm sort of ex- incredibly introverted. Like too introverted. Too introverted? What, so what's yeah. that? That's, I guess, a bit socially yeah, anxious? So, or? Yeah, social anxiety... Um, you know, if I stupidly agree to go to a dinner party for weeks before I'm worried about it. Yeah. Why do you think it's getting worse and worse? Yes. Why do you think that is? I think this is really bad, but I really think that, you know, most of my life has been very happy and, and, you know, things have been good. But I think the three years of living in Cardiff between like the age of 14 and 17, when I was like really bullied, it's just, it's just stayed, you know, it just never went away and, and I can't lose it. And so every time I walk into a room, not always, like I didn't with you just now, you know, there's certain people who it doesn't happen with, but a lot of the time, you know, I walk into the room with a, and I meet new people with a sort of feeling of, you know, lack of self-worth. And, I, and I'm sure it's down to, you know, having three really bad years during my formative years. And I wish I could find a way to not feel that way because it's completely irrational because, yeah, I'm a, I'm an, I'm a sort of successful and interesting person. But I just, I'm, I, um, it's just I'm kind of overwhelmed with these sort of feelings of, you know, social anxiety. So have you never dealt with the the bullying years have you never spoken to anyone about it no never had any therapy in my life never been to a therapist why you strike me as the kind of person who who would be open to that uh, maybe maybe i should i mean it's helped you know lots of people i know and loved ones and so on um I don't know, maybe it's just i don't know <laughs> maybe i should i mean i'm the only person in living in new york who doesn't have a therapist yeah. I I mean, because I feel at the moment, it's for me, it's getting worse as well. But it's uh-huh. getting so quickly, very much worse that I'm like, this is not because uh-huh. where I my fear is that where does it end? 
you know, like, because you, like, I wasn't this scared of people five years ago, but I also wasn't this scared of people two months ago. It's like, what, how does it, what, what, uh, what's and, the and end? have you worked out, like, why it's happening? No, kind of. Like, I'm in intense therapy at the moment. She just upped me to twice a week. Mm. So I'm, like, r- really trying to, to get at it. But, and I think that's part, it's part of it, I think. Because I think it's like a, because my mind is being kind of, tangled up in this way that i think i just need to be very much protected so that i can deal with it um but like is that because i also i'm at a point now where you know when people say oh are you, are you afraid of dying alone i'm like oh no that sounds yeah sounds pretty amazing actually <laughs> yeah i feel the same I, I love being alone um you know i'm not going it's friday night in soho and after you've after you leave you know I might go to the gym for half an hour, but, you know, I definitely won't see anyone. No, and you live... This is so central. Yeah. This, is all, this is an awful area on, on a Friday. Right. <laughs> so many people. Yeah, so many people. <sighs> uh, yeah, sometimes I wonder whether it, whether it annoys my wife, because my wife... I mean, I wouldn't call her an extrovert, but she definitely doesn't have the hang-ups that I do. And I just don't want to do anything. Like, mm. when I'm not on... When I'm not, like, working or going off having adventures or being on stage or whatever... I just don't want to do anything. I just want to watch TV and go to... I want to go to the gym and watch TV and then go to bed. So do you think... um, So your story... Because, as you said, you're really... Your life is quite interesting. You're doing a lot of really exciting things that most people couldn't even dream of doing. Is that... Have you kind of compartmentalized your social whatever activities in this work situation? So it's kind of... I'm doing that and then apart from that, nothing else. Yeah, pretty much. But sometimes it bleeds in. I mean, I, I remember this time a couple of years ago when I was interviewing. I was in Sweden. I was on a train in Sweden on my way to interview a man who had been arrested for splitting the atom in his kitchen. Uh, he was. I think he was. I think he had autism. Um, but anyway, he managed to split the atom in his kitchen, and he was arrested for you know I don't know something to do with like the Nuclear Terrorism Act or something. <laughs> so I was on my way to, to to visiting him, and nothing to do with him, just social anxiety. I just got completely overwhelmed, and I got off the train. Mm-hmm. And but then I thought, this is this is ridiculous. I mean, I'm a journalist. I'm off to interview somebody. So you know, so I got I got on the next train and just carried on, and I interviewed him. And of course, you know, as as always, with I'm sure you feel the same way with with any kind of anxiety, the anticipation is always much worse than the reality. And you know, the minute I was at his house, I was fine. But yeah, that's an example of me of of my anxiety actually interfering with my work. Another example was this year in. Can um, so the, I, I co-wrote the film Oakja uh, about a giant pig. Um, it's really good. You, you obviously, I obviously, heard of it. No. okay. It's called Oakja, and it's about a little girl called Mija, whose best friend is a giant pig the size of an elephant called Oakja, like a magical animal, and it gets kidnapped by an evil corporation run by Tilda Swinton. And taken to New York, and Mija has to get her giant uh, best friend back before it's slaughtered for its meat. <laughs> so that's the, sounds amazing. Yeah, it's really good. It's on Netflix. It's oh, really? Okja. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, it was premiered. It, got, it had its premiere in Cannes. 
I'm going to tell you a really bad story. Go, go on. Okay. Um, it was so it got it had like its world premiere in Cannes, and so I asked Netflix if I could come because I just you know it's a big you know it's like a big black tie affair and red carpets and I thought it'd be really fun to experience that. So they said they were really nice about it. So they said, of course. So they flew me to Cannes. But when I was in my room in Cannes, like in the in the day of the premiere, I just sort of fell apart. And it was nothing to do with anything that was happening in France. I just, I got this like massive social anxiety. I just couldn't, I, I practically couldn't leave the room. I, really, I was I was in a kind of turmoil. Um, but then I put on my tuxedo and you know went to the film, and it was all fine. But 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 that day was really really bad. Anyway, I got back to New York. I got sick as well. I got a really bad cold, and I wonder whether the two things were connected. Um, but when I got back to New York, I had like dinner with a friend of mine, and and I said like, um, so I was in Cannes, and you know I started like I kind of really fell, you know, I sort of fell apart. And my friend said, I don't want to hear about anything bad happening to you in Cannes. <laughs> <laughs> she was like really annoyed with me for like having a bad time in Cannes. And I was like trying to say to her, like, like, like the geography, like, isn't the important thing. The important thing is the fact that I, like, fell apart. But she couldn't get over. She basically thought I was being really entitled and privileged. Like a humble brag or? No, more like, you know, white male privilege. But that, that falling apart in Cannes doesn't count. Well, I think it's the opposite, isn't it? Because it's mm-hmm. like the, the greater the event, the... The the more I don't know prominent it is that you're falling apart because you go no but this was like the could have been the best day of my life and yet I didn't want to go yeah I think that makes way more sense well I think so and it was real I mean I was I tried to say to her like this isn't a story about my privilege in fact quite the opposite but she wasn't having it she did not <laughs> want to hear I mean this this story didn't end well like she still <laughs> feels that I had no right oh, to be upset in camp. It's on the top, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Can I tell you my weird, I had a really weird kind of, because I'm going through like a lot of stuff mentally, and I had a thing mm-hmm. where afterwards I just thought, what is happening in my head? I had, I've had i had a big, huge brown leather couch in my house mm-hmm. for since I moved in. It's not mine, it was just there. It's really big. And then I had, it was a Monday night when I suddenly thought, I can't have it in my house. I just can't have it in my house. That from it has to go. Why? I was trying to, this I sounds like know. an OCD type yeah, thing. It yeah, it is. I th- well, that I got diagnosed with OCD about a month ago, so it, it's that. Uh-huh. And it it was that. It was like I have no. This it was huge. And I was like I have to get it out. So I put it on all the Gumtree, Freegal, Free Cycle websites, and Facebook and Twitter. I was like, can someone please take my couch? <laughs> I'll pay you to take my couch, and no one could. And I called a removal company. Uh, and they said, oh, yeah, we can come tomorrow morning. And I was like, it's not okay. You have to come now. You must have the cars. Can you just, you, can you go and get the car and get the couch? He was like, oh, yeah, tomorrow for 120 pounds. I was like, oh, no, no, I can't do that. So I called my friend and I was like, you have to help me. You have to, we have to carry it somewhere. We have to just get rid of it. So he came over like in a cab and I was like in my pajamas and we carried this huge couch outside and put it on the pavement and then called the council. I was like, it's there. Give me a fine. I don't right. care. You just have to take it. And they were like, it's very expensive. I was like, yeah, just, I don't care. I just right. need it out. And, and what, I mean, can you work out like why, why this thing had to be gone? No. Couldn't, I don't know. Because it, it, it felt suffocating. It felt like claustrophobia. Like I needed mm-hmm. space. 
So as soon as it was gone, I was like moving around all the furniture, like till 4 a.m. I was just moving stuff around my house. And I was like, oh, what is happening? <laughs> this is not, yeah. this is such a weird, <laughs> such a weird thing to suddenly. Yeah. Like, and that's the thing you can't really explain. Anxiety is a weird thing because it's, you know, because throughout all of this, you're, you're aware of the ridiculousness of yeah. it but you can't do anything about it yeah same with the so i mean i've had a third date with someone where i ended up hiding under a, st- a staircase and i was just sitting there like what are you doing yeah. like i could see him looking for me and i was like what what's happening you're hiding from a person you know really well yeah what is happening i think like the fact that we're we're now living through a time when there's no problem with talking openly about this stuff definitely helps right you know keeping this stuff secret which not that long ago, even when I was a kid, like, you know, even like 30 years ago, there was still, you know, there was much more of a stigma about this stuff than there is now. So I think one positive thing is that the, the openness that people can talk about this stuff is helpful, I think. Do you, do you agree? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I'm quite lucky. I don't really remember a time when I couldn't talk about it. Mm. There was a time that definitely, like, you know, things like OCD, you know, when I was at school depression like anything mm. they were like the sort of crazy person that you wanted to stay away from oh back in the days when it's like yeah <laughs> fix um, women by throwing them in like a tumble dryer or something <laughs> yeah right we did that in yeah Cardiff. yeah um, a uterus has to be reattached yeah no i remember that i remember that there'd be stories about you know that person you know he's got he's got depression it's really it's in my lifetime that people thought that way well we have to take into consideration as well that like the gender thing, because it's harder for men to talk about. Usually, what most men, not all men, whatever. Um, like it's generally mm-hmm. harder for men to be able to talk about stuff like that. So I'm yeah. kind of lucky in that aspect, I think. Yeah, people are still surprised. In fact, just today I did a podcast interview with James O'Brien from LPC. I, I, I like him. Anyway, he sort of basically alluded to. I can't. I can't quite remember, but but basically, he he sort of said, "Is it hard for you to talk openly about your mm. sort of issues?" And but yeah, um, it's not at all for me. But but there are there's still a sort of sense out there that you know it, it may be, you know, some people might think it's strange to talk openly about this stuff. Yeah. Well, I guess it's also this, the social circles you you're in. Yeah. It's comedy and stuff. It's a bit more. We're kind of meant to talk about the darkness a lot. Yeah, where I, maybe in an office, someone's not gonna just come out and say it. Mm-hmm. Hey, speaking about cultural shifts, mm-hmm. I've been watching a lot of eighties and nineties family comedies lately. Yeah, and some of them have stood the test of time very well, like Parenthood and Three Men and a Baby. Oh yeah, yeah, and Annie, which I saw last night, which oh, I yeah? thought was just so great. There's a little bit of racism in Annie, but but it's sort of forgivable. But some of them are like shocking, like yeah. shockingly racist and transphobic, and you know, Sixteen Candles, the the John the early John Hughes movie with Molly Ringwald. There's a Chinese character in it. Every time he comes on, a gong goes off, <gasps> and then. Yeah, and then and then when Americans see this Chinese character, they take a step backwards, like they've never seen anything like When's that. When's this from? Like the eighties. The eighties. <laughs> and Mrs. Doubtfire. Again. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Just the cover is offensive. Yes. Um, 
Yeah, I'm really. It just goes to show, like you know, people who are against political correctness. It's 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 really you know yeah. change stuff. Well, at know? the moment, you can almost see a movie from six months ago, and then you'll go like, "Ooh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh no, <laughs> it's happening really quickly." Thank God. Yeah. But um, so when you when you do, it's like the general thing I've, I've been wondering about you is. Because I just listened to The Butterfly Effect, which is brilliant, and Thank people should you. listen to it. It's, it's really available exciting. on iTunes now, all podcast platforms, for free. It's my story about the tech. I'm kind of saying yeah, this to the it. people listening. As opposed, yeah, I'm yeah, looking yeah. at you, but saying it to the people listening. Uh, it's about the tech takeover of the porn industry, and it, and it is really, we're really proud of it, me and Lena. Yeah, and people who, because I interviewed uh, Sapphire Blue, who's a, a porn star here in the UK, and people who listen to that episode, it's it's really fun to listen to. I mean, for me, I was like, oh yeah, that, she mentioned when I interviewed her, she mentioned something that reminded me of that thing. So it's really, uh-huh. oh, it's really interesting. Oh, it's cool. really really good. Thank you. And so when you do, you've done that, you've done uh, Psychopaths House, you've done Men Are Goats, you've done all these um, uh, uh, publicly shamed, all of these things. When you do these projects, how much? I guess there are several questions to this. Like, how does it affect you? Do you suddenly does it do? You, does it teach you something about yourself in terms of these different topics? Like, for example, on the like the psychopath test, were you suddenly very aware of your own empathy and your ability mm. to feel empathy? Do you know what I? Yeah, what I'm getting at. Yeah, um, I think the best stories are the ones where you do find yourself going through some kind of change. Um, so my my book there, I think somebody's about to knock on our door. So what are they going to do? It's ice. They're going to put ice in the ice bucket. Oh my god! Yeah, <laughs> but will I tell her to come back later? When oh, you can you can come in and put ice in the ice bucket. I don't. I can't see an ice bucket anywhere. An ice bucket there, next to the orange. Oh, that. Oh, I was looking for a metally thing. Right. That's more like a por- porcelain. No. Uh, glass. Glass. <laughs> so anyway, All the um, words. but yeah, the answer is like. Most like like my favorite stories that I've done are ones when I have gone through some kind of change. So, and certainly throughout my career, I've gone through like a a change. Like I've I've become like much more empathetic and curious and you know compassionate as the years have gone by. Um, which is really what my books have been publicly shamed about. It's like a sort of call for for a sort of empathy in a world that's you know, doesn't love empathy as much as it should. Um, I guess because, you know, I've, I've, you know, all of us as we get older, we, we carry with us the sort of flotsam and jetsam of all the bad things that have happened to us in our lives and all the humiliations and all the times you've got off the train in Sweden because you couldn't handle meeting a new person and all of that stuff. And, and, you know, of course you carry with you all of those fragilities. And so when you meet other Broken people. There we go. Oh, okay, hang on. Yeah, okay. Hi. Okay. Hi. Hi. How are you? I'm good, thank you. Would you like some ice in your room? Yes, please. Can I come? Yes, please. Thank you. Hi. Hello. Hi. How are you? I'm oh, well. How are you? Oh, sorry for disturbing. Oh, that's no okay. Thank you very much. No worries, my friend. Bye bye. Okay. Thank bye you. bye. Because I've just listened to so much of the butterfly effect, I was like, "Oh, this is like live reporting." I'm like, oh. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I'm also surprised that people become more like some people become more conservative and less empathetic as they get older, and that always surprises me a bit because, you know, if life teaches us anything, it teaches us that we're all 
fucked up, you know, we're all just trying to get through life and we've all got our own baggage and our own irrationalities. And, and you know, if, you know, I have no sympathy for, for cruel people, for people who behave cruelly towards other people. But I, but I can't think of anybody else that I don't have empathy for other than cruel mm. people. Um, so, but can you not? Do you, yeah. What What do you mean by, when you say cruel people? Oh, you know, people who abuse their power, like the sexual predator stuff yeah. that's happening at the moment. Yeah. You know, neo-Nazis like marching on Charlottesville. You know, people like that. Um, but you know, one one of the main reasons why I wanted to make the butterfly effect was because I wanted to turn on its head the kind of concept of who should be considered reputable and who should be considered disreputable. And in the in my in the butterfly effect, the porn people are all, you know, lovely, sincere, heartfelt, kind hearted, you know, supportive, you know, lovely people, just sort of outsiders. Um there's a real kind of collegiate atmosphere, certainly in the in the corner of porn that, that I was in in the San Fernando Valley. Whereas the tech people who are who are generally regarded as reputable, you know, they're the ones who are like stealing everybody's porn and getting rich off the back of pirated content um, in this sort of, you know, amoral way that only tech utopians can be. So, so yeah, so really the whole, that whole show was a, was a show about empathy, really. It was about, and destigmatization and, you know, rehumanizing people who were dehumanized. So in a way, all your stuff is about empathy, right? To some yeah. extent? Uh, yeah, I think so. And the only time it ever really backfired was some people missed the point about, say, you've been publicly shamed and, and felt that I was like calling for like empathy for all shamed people, no matter what they did, even if they were a you know, racist cop who'd shot someone, you know, like the worst thing you can think of. But of course, the book wasn't doing that, and and this was like a kind of false narrative about the book that was being brought out by people who right. hadn't read the book, but it had like a, you know, had a sort of preconception of what the book was like. Oh, that must be annoying. I that mean, that was annoying because so much of my self worth is wrapped up in my work. So, so to have your work unfairly maligned, you know, did, was upsetting because because I care about my work so much. I feel like also the, I feel like there's still a few, and I use this very broadly, like safe spaces within arts mm. where I don't feel like trolls, for example, if we're still going to call them trolls, I, they don't feel like they listen to podcasts, mm. and also I don't feel like they read books. So I think you can, I think you can do those things and then not get a lot of hatred, because it's too much. There's too much words. There's too many words in it for them to, you know, grasp it and then be able to to make jokes about it. Because they can watch a 10-minute stand-up clip or look at a picture of you or read a status or a tweet. Yeah. So I feel like, yeah, I would feel much safer writing a book about something than I would, you know, yeah. doing a stand-up sex. I knew, oh, that's going to get a backlash at some point. Yeah. But then, you know, through the prism of Twitter, you know, everything can can be kind of ruined. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, <laughs> Twitter being the world's worst information swapping service, you know, constantly getting getting things wrong. Did you have a, what was your preconception of porn and the porn industry and porn stars before you started? Um, that's a good question. I mean, I, I suppose I wondered whether, you know, the women were being exploited and everybody was damaged and, 
And of course, everybody is damaged, but that's because everyone's damaged. <laughs> um, but we deliberately, Lena and I, my producer, deliberately chose the... We, we decided we wanted to tell a story about the tech takeover of the porn industry. This guy called Fabian, who basically gave the world Pornhub. And I, I wanted to tell, tell a story about the consequences of Fabian's business plan. So it felt right for us to go to, like, the heart of... The, the most legitimate part of porn, which was the San Fernando Valley, where if there is exploitation, if there is kind of sexual harassment, we didn't see any of that. You know, we we found a very kind of supportive and, you know, I mean, it's got its problems, but basically a um, a place where people look after each other. I think if you want to find that sort of sex trafficky, exploitative porn, go to places where porn isn't legal, like Miami or or Nevada, I think you're much more likely to find, you know, stories of girls being forced against their will to be in porn. But I don't you you're not you're less likely to find that in the valley. So we so we deliberately chose uh we deliberately chose the valley for that reason. You in one of the episodes you touch upon the topic of fetishes. Do you when you're in that situation because you, you did go I remember one bit, and Samus edited this out if you don't want it in, where you talk about people with specific fetishes, and at one point you get locked in a bathroom, and and you start to wonder if oh maybe that could be yeah you said it could be it could have been become your fetish if that had happened to you in an earlier stage yeah how much is how much did that whole thing make you just like from a you point of view did that whole experience of doing this the butterfly effect make you think about your own sexuality is that something you've what you wanted to delve into um not much because i'm british <laughs> yeah i'm shy um, <laughs> so no, um and i and i kept my own like anything to do with that aspect of my life out of the show i don't think anybody would want to hear about it's like because i'm like i'm sort of you know like alan bennett i'm like sexless i'm like a kind of eunuch from game of thrones so i don't think anybody would really want me to delve too but much is that into... your public persona is that how you feel um <laughs> probably more my public persona than how i feel um but also i didn't think it was that interesting like it's you know i'm not i'm not a very interesting person in terms of sexuality to be completely honest um but I, I did pick up certain things. I mean, we, we did this kind of really interesting story about bespoke porn. So because of the tech takeover of the porn industry, um, like a lot of professional porn people have to stay afloat by making custom porn films, which are basically entire porn films for just one viewer who's always wanted to see a porn film, say, where you know, naked porn stars destroy his stamp collection. So obviously you're not going to find that on Pornhub. So he'll send the stamp collection to professional porn people and and they'll destroy his stamps. And, you know, this was like remarkable insights into people's inner lives. Um, Gremlins Man. So he commissioned a porn star to call Christina Carter to dress as Wonder Woman. And the scenario that he wrote for her was that she's Wonder Woman and she wants to leave the house, but a little gremlin pops up from behind a sofa and hits her over the head. And so she stays put because she's stunned. And so we interviewed the man who commissioned this film and, and 
It turns out that when he was five years old, his mother left and his only memory of his mother was sitting on her suitcase to stop her from leaving the house. So obviously his Gremlins video was a kind of, you know, erotic retelling of that traumatic story. So I suppose that made me think a little bit about myself, like, um, and, and everybody's sexuality, about how it's triggered. So I didn't, this is a really banal thought, but and it's an obvious thought, but I did say to a dominatrix at one point, and we didn't put this in the show, I said, so I bet you that every man who wants to be the, the sub, like the, the, you know, the masochist, is really powerful in real life. And every man who wants to be the kind of dominator is quite powerless in real life or sees themselves as quite powerless. And she said, you know, yes, you know, it's, it's always the opposite of, of their real life. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah. Oh, exciting. <laughs> um, you, I heard you say, I don't remember where, you talked about how you've been in quite a lot of... Um, actually dangerous situations. You mentioned something about the KKK. You mentioned something about... Yeah. I want to say the Taliban? No, not the Taliban. Uh, well, I mean, not the Taliban, but but I was with... Um, I was with this group called Al-Muhajirun for a year, an Islamic militant group, who at the time were like, you know, sort of fledgling militant Islamist group who nobody took particularly seriously. But you know, in subsequent years, many of them have gone off and killed people or blown themselves up or driven vans into people. And, and their leader, Omar Bakri, who I spent a year with, is now in prison in Beirut for inspiring acts of terrorism. And he outed me as a Jew at his jihad training camp uh, in in Crawley near Gatwick Airport. He said, I've, I've told this story before, but he basically said to all his jihad trainees, he said, look at me with the infidel John Ronson, who is... A Jew, and they all went. Like they were scared. Well, just like shocked that there was a Jew there. And I said, um, I said, surely it's better to be a Jew than an atheist. And I heard someone in the crowd go, No, it isn't. <laughs> <laughs> the crazy thing about that story is that I am an atheist. I don't know why I would choose a jihad training camp to suddenly, like, you know, proudly <laughs> profess my Jewishness. Like I don't do it anywhere else. But that's that's what I find so. F- it seems like such a contradiction of who you are. Like we're talking about how oh no, it's yeah. Friday in Soho, let's not go anywhere. And then yeah. you're like, oh, yeah, I just went around being in a very dangerous situation. Yeah. Well, you know what? I, Louis Theroux answered this. Was asked this question. I think I, I can't remember whether I read it or whether I was with him and somebody else. But anyway, I remember his answer. He said, "Not getting the story is more anxiety-inducing than." the dangerous situation that you put yourself in to get the story. And because so much of my self-worth is wrapped up in, in you know, the work being good, that if whatever story I'm on will naturally take me to a dangerous situation, like, you know, a, you know, a jihad training camp or sneaking into a secret club or something like that, it's more frightening to not do it than to do it. That, that's, that's the answer. When have you felt the most... Have you ever felt scared for your life? Oh, yeah. When was the... Um, one time I went to a white supremacist compound and they were really hardcore. Even by white supremacist standards, they were really hardcore. They were called Aryan Nations. And I went past all the signs that said no Jews, you know, Jews turned back. 
Um, and the minute I got out of the car, I got surrounded by all these skinheads who basically knew I was Jewish. And they were, like, surrounding me and, you know, squaring up to me and asking me what my genealogy was. They said the word genealogy. Jesus. Uh, so I said I was Church of England. And one of them, who wasn't a skinhead, he was, like, slightly older, made some joke to kind of alleviate the situation. He said something like, oh, Church of England, you're the ones who, and just made some kind of joke. And I've no proof, but I've oft- I've always wondered whether he was an undercover federal agent who Ooh. who was helping me out because uh, because you know that those you know supremacist groups are massively infiltrated by feds so i've always i've always wondered that oh wow that was probably the scariest um but not the only time i mean i, I got chased by the bilderberg group which is this uh, secret powerful secret club i was chased by their security guards and that was terrifying car chase that was a car i say a car chase i was going 30 miles an hour and so was he but if i'd gone faster <laughs> he'd have gone faster a meat car chase because yeah. I, I feel so there's a question i always ask in these um so basically we're in this kind of dystopian future which isn't that far away from the future we do have but basically there's um so the bad guys, the right wing, they've taken over. This is a dictator, evil dictator. Again, not too yeah. Yeah, dissimilar. But there's an evil dictator and there's like war, like a civil war. Everything's fucked. You can basically choose between being, uh, like joining them. You can be neutral or you can join the resistance. Hmm. And I have to say the resistance has really good infrastructure. So where would you choose to go? Um Okay, that's a really good question because, as you know, sometimes I think you know I'm not entirely sure where I where I stand politically all the time because sometimes I think that being a, a kind of moderate, being a centrist, is the right way forward. Like like Obama was a centrist, and I really admired Obama. So in that way, like being neutral in the hope that being neutral is the way to create a sort of safer world and a less polemical world and you know but if being neutral means being like like a weak like switzerland like so i suppose i'm asking you what does neutral mean does neutral mean trying to bring about a better world by bringing the opposing sides together no the neutrals are the people who just kind of stay indoors and you know someone asks them you know they're not going to take in people and hide them in their basement and they're not gonna they're not going to try and talk to the talk, talk sense to the dictator no i think that would be the resistance wouldn't it they're, not, like, they're, well, they're just actually, inactive, they're completely passive and inactive and they're just trying to keep their head down hoping it'll all pass at some point. Okay. No, I think I'd, I think if that's the definition of neutral, I'd be the resistance. But but I'm not sure that the resistance would want to try and talk sense into the dictator. Cause that's, well, that, well, that's the lead-up question, is what would your role be within the resistance? Well, it would be that. It would, I would be the person who who would not shout and scream but would try and get people to talk to each other in the hope of finding some common ground. That's nice. Yeah. That's a really lovely position. Yeah. I mean, that's Obama's that's, that's Obama position, which didn't, you know, necessarily work because, you yeah. know, look who's president now. But, yeah. but, but that, wasn't in, that wasn't by any means entirely Obama's fault. But I think, I think Obama's position is... You know, every time I listen to an Obama speech... I I think you know that's that's what I am that's who I am
I really do. I really do. That's the episode title. (laughs) I I tell you, like, um, uh, you know, he's given speeches. Like the last speech he ever gave might have been straight out of so you've been publicly shamed. I mean, the, you know, the, the the points he was trying to raise were exactly the same points I was trying to raise. And so you've been publicly shamed. I think politically, I'm, I was just completely aligned with him. And, and he would call himself a centrist. And so I guess I'd call myself a centrist. I like that. It's sort of, <laughs> sort of Obama. <laughs> yeah. He says, you know, we, we he said in July, do you remember when the five Dallas cops were shot? Mm. Um, he said, we we turn on the TV and we see positions harden and people withdrawing to their corners and politicians you know either capitalizing or trying to avoid the fallout and we see all of this and it's hard to think that the center won't hold and he was right you know the center didn't hold do you think there's a how much of the reason that you are the person you are stems from those three kind of difficult years. Yeah, I'm convinced of it. Like, probably the most controversial story I ever wrote was the story about this this woman, Justine Sacco, who was asleep on a plane. She tweeted this... She was trying to be, like, a liberal. She was trying to tweet a sort of liberal joke, mocking her own privilege, but it came out really badly. And the joke was, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS, just kidding, I'm white. And while she slept on a plane, Twitter, you know, dismantled her life. And I, I've I've often thought that the reason why I felt so animated about that particular story was because Justin Sacco was torn apart while she was asleep by everybody. It, it became legitimised bullying. Uh, tr- misogynistic trolls went for her. You know, she got all the rape threats that you always get, you know, if you're a woman being shamed. Um, you know, people were saying somebody HIV positive should rape this bitch and then we'll find out if her skin colour protects her from AIDS. So those people were going after her. Hipsters were going after her, like, you know, I want to go home from this bar, but everybody at this bar is just waiting for her plane to land, so I can't leave this bar. Um, social justice people went after her, obviously. Um, philanthropists went after her. Donald Trump went after her that night. You know, she she united a lot of disparate groups. And I think that's the reason why I felt so strongly that I wanted to tell that story is because when you were bullied... And, you know, if you talk to Monica Lewinsky, who was also bullied at school and also talks a lot about this stuff, uh, she, she'd feel the same way, which is like when you're bullied at school by everyone, it's a legitimised bullying. Nobody thinks they're doing something bad because they're all bullying you. And that's what happened to Justine Sacco that night. And that's why I felt so strongly about telling that story. Like a... Uh, I kind of hate to say the word, but like a redemption thing? Um, it's more like just trying to show people. You know, so many of my stories are about are about bad things that happen like over there. So the psychopath test, you know, in part is about the... the Uh, the uh, pharmaceutical industry kind of capitalizing on mental health diagnoses and and some bad parts of psychiatry who label people wrongly and so on but these are like far away badnesses um but the night of Justine Sacco we we were the bad people like everyone on Twitter that night tore apart Justine Sacco everybody did you know I I saw it unfold and my first thought was you know wow somebody's fucked you know I got excited and and you know obviously it didn't take me long to realize that it was a more complicated story than that so it wasn't so much redemption it was more wanting to like 
wanting to show people their hypocrisies. Like, you know what? If you're going to attack abuses of power, like, think about when we abuse our power. That, that felt really important to me, you know? And still does. Like, even though, like, two years later, I still sit, notice myself being attacked for that story because some people think Justine Sacco deserved everything she got because of her, you know, because her tweet could have been perceived as racist. Um, although I, I would argue that it, the fact that it wasn't intended to be racist means that she shouldn't be convicted of racism. But, you know, but I think it's a really important story for that for that reason. Like, we you know we have to confront our own hypocrisies. Mm, so how much changes within you every time you do a story? Um, that that one definitely changed me. In, in what way? Like, does it, did it make um, you... Um, I keep wanting to say redemption. Uh, I don't think many stories that I do make me feel kind of good, because I, I never feel that good. Um, it's more um, that that story that story I just felt like I was doing the right thing and it was hard it, you know that was not if you want to win a popularity contest don't defend Justine Sacco uh, because you know she's you know she's on one level she's a privileged white woman um, so but I'm really glad I did that story because it was hard, because it was complicated and sort of makes people, you know, have, hopefully makes people confront their own biases and so on. Uh, I, I, I guess, like, you know, when you tell a story well, you get... Like, I, I love the fact that Okja, my giant pig movie, um, really moves people. And there's definitely a satisfaction that you get from from constructing a story in a way that hasn't has an emotional impact on people, whether it means you know make them makes them sad or makes them happy. There's a, there's a real satisfaction from that. You know, I think I've, I've you know I've helped to create something that's that matters to people. But beyond that, I, I'm still just miserable and anxious. <laughs> I don't, you know, I don't. I, honestly, my my happiness. Like, if I read a really good review. My happiness lasts less than like ten seconds. What about you? You must be. Are you the same? Uh, yeah. Well, at the moment, I'm quite miserable. So, yeah. but I feel like some kind. It depends what kind of miserable. Because if I can see an end to it, or if I know that the misery is caused by me dealing with things, like I think at the moment I'm just feeling a lot of childhood stuff because mm -hmm. I can cry for no reason and not feel sad. But it's it's almost like another person is crying through me. Yeah. So I'm just like, oh, I'm just going to lie here and let this person cry through me. <laughs> until... So what, what makes you, what kind of triggers tears in you? N well, n like not nothing at all. Just... Oh, no. The, reason, <laughs> the most recent one was that my dad uh, got on Facebook, and which shouldn't matter. But I had this whole thing. I went to my psychologist and I was like, I am. Oh, yeah. My dad's on Facebook, which is fine. Like, mm -hmm. I'm fine with that. It's, I mean, sure, it's a bit annoying because actually, actually it's quite Actually, it's really annoying. Actually, fuck him. And I spent an hour <laughs> screaming about that he was had been on holiday and it was so annoying that he was just... I think at one point I screamed. Um, and he says out there, having a lot of fun while I'm here paying £90 an hour to talk about him. <laughs> so I think at the moment that triggered something. Okay. Um, but I like that it's... I, have, I, I just can't feel stuck. I'm okay with 
feeling miserable as long as I know it's because it's heading somewhere. Right. But if it's a step back, I get really scared. I need it to always move somewhere, I think. Okay. Well, I was going to, like, one of the questions I was going to ask you was where you are at right now in your life. Because a lot when you do podcasts or interviews or chats or whatever you want to call this, it's about, you know, the future or past. But, like, right now in mm. your life, not bis- not um, career-wise, not work-wise, where are you at in your... Hmm. Okay, so, well, my son's 19 now. So, you know, I don't, I'm not required to be much of a father anymore and that sort of actually that kind of opens up some quite positive possibilities we just we had a little bit of extra money that we didn't need so we bought a little house up in upstate new york which we haven't needs that loads of work done so and we only just bought it so i haven't been in it yet properly but i am thinking like like quite good like I, I don't have as many responsibilities as I as I as I always have had. You know, Joel could look after himself. My wife Elaine is like really self sufficient, um, and you know just does her own thing. So basically, like I've, you know, the the positive thing in my life right now is that I'm pretty kind of free. I, I you know, I'm here in London. I'm I'm about to do this tour that starts tomorrow, but I came a couple of days early. And there was no reason why I couldn't. Like, I'm not abdicating any responsibilities. The only, like, real responsibility I have in my life is, is like, helping with, with the dogs. Like, Aww. you know, doing the late walk and stuff. Um, so that's a really good feeling. And I've got a bit of money, you know. I'm, I'm in, you know, more than I've had before. So I, I don't have to... I still worry about unexpected tax bills and stuff, but not quite as much as I used to. And... So I feel, like, more free. I, I like the fact that, like, you know, I was thinking, in fact, I was going to say to Elaine, I was going to say, like, if if it's a really cold winter in New York, why don't we all, like, drive, like, all of us, like me, her, Joel and the dogs, um, just all drive to, to like, L.A. for, for a month? Um, and there's no reason, other than the fact that I think driving to L.A. sounds much better than... Than, <laughs> than driving to LA. <laughs> yeah, sounds better than it actually is. It's yeah. just, basically, it's just like a week of cramps. Um, <laughs> but, and you have to drive because you can't take the dogs on trains in America, annoyingly, oh. unless they're like £20. But, you know, what? You know, dogs that are less than £20, they're like, they're not dogs. They're Pretty like, much cats, cats, aren't they? Yeah. <laughs> Fuck them. <laughs> so, um, but, but yeah, I've got, so I'm sort of freer than I've ever been. So, how does that make you feel? Like potentially good? good, like like theoretically good. Yeah. Um, so, for instance, I'm writing a movie at the moment, um, and I theoretically I could like go to a hotel and write it, or if our little house upstate gets done, I could write it there. That that feels theoretically really good. The reason I say theoretically is because I haven't actually utilised any of this freedom. Right. Um, but, I, but I could. And you feel like that would probably be a good thing? Yeah. Like, honestly, Elaine wouldn't mind. If I said to Elaine, I, I want to go to London for a week just just to write, I, th- I think she wouldn't mind. I think she'd be all right with it. That's nice. So yeah. what's your... Do you have a dream topic that you want to delve into? Like, if, I don't, How does that happen? Do you just get like a spark in your brain and then suddenly this becomes your project for the next year or... Do you have like a list of things you will you want to get through? Or? No, I don't have a list. I'm, I'm always looking for something that will be that kind of wind behind my sails. Um, 
Uh, I've got a sort of I've got a few kind of half ideas at the moment, and because Oakja did well, I've I've been offered some film scripts to write, so which I am going to do, but I don't have the same confidence in screenplay writing that I do in journalism, in non-fiction. So I, I hope I'm not making a mistake, sort of diving into all of that stuff. Part of me wonders whether you, you know, you, there's something to be said for sticking to doing what you know you do well, and then there's something to be said for getting out of your comfort zone. Yeah, because you said that when you started, and people said you were going to be a writer, and you were like, nah, yeah. like you, some you will get good at it at some yeah. point. <laughs> and Oakja like really moved people. You know, the last time I saw Oakja. Uh, They showed it. It was made for Netflix, but they showed it in some cinemas. So I went to see it with my friend Mona Chalaby, and at the end, I turned round, like at the end credits. I was, I had a sort of facetious joke that I was going to say to her, and I turned round, and she was like uncontrollably sobbing. So I didn't say the facetious joke, but instead, I just felt really good that I'd, you know, contributed to to those sort of emotions. And people all over the cinema were, were crying. That's a fun way of doing this kind of whatever kind of art you do. You can see mm. someone, a whole audience full of people crying, and you can be like, "Yeah, yeah, yeah." There's definitely <laughs> I did that. Like, yeah, I ruined that night. I mean, I, I did. It was really. I mean, it was Bong Joon Ho's film, really, and I just contributed. But I definitely contributed to those tears. <laughs> Half yeah. those tears are mine. Yeah, <laughs> and then I licked them up. <laughs> so uh, the last question that I always ask people is this: so. Imagine you're in the delivery room and you've just been born and you get to hold yourself as a baby and you you know that the next how many years of this baby's life is going to be terif- there's going to be terrifying moments it's going to be chased by <laughs> yeah. it's going to be like Nazis. real life there's going to be Nazis it's going to be car chases uh what would you say to little tiny baby John Ronson to well maybe to make him stop crying but maybe you don't want him to stop crying what would you and you can't change the future you can't mm. no, regardless of what you say you can't change the future But what would you say to little tiny baby you? Yeah, like for all the all the anxieties and all the miseries, you know, nothing that bad will actually happen. Um, like the you know, I'm sitting here now, and it's actually been pretty good. You know, I've been you know weighed down by you know all of the ang- all of that anxiety, and but actually it all turned out okay. You know, I, I have this running fear of of If I call my son and he doesn't answer the phone, I kind of just immediately assume that he's dead. And some, not so much now, but in the old days, I would go through like the grieving process. I'd become like so convinced he's dead. I'd be, I'd be, kind of hysterical with grief. And sometimes I think to myself, God, I just like Joel's nineteen now. Like I wish I could say to the me of ten years ago, you know. I can tell you this, like, he's still alive when he's 19. Um, you know, to just save all of that irrational anxiety. I think what I'd say to the baby is that, you know, you're going to go through a lot of anxiety, but actually it's all irrational and it's all anticipatory. And the reality is that actually everything's fine. Do you still need to be told that? Um, I wish... The, I wish that I could rest on my laurels a little bit more. Like I, I wish I could be happy with, with, with my achievements, uh, and not just constantly be kind of worried that, you know, I'll never be able to write another book or, 
you know, I wish I could rest on my laurels more. I hope there'll be a time in my life before I die when I could actually sit back and just feel happy about the good things that I've accomplished. And if you had something you wanted to say to you when you were 14, 15, 16, 17, yeah. what would you say to that kid? I'd say this is definitely the worst of it. Like It's, it's definitely going to get better. But, you know, I think I knew that, actually, at that age. I think I knew I'd get out of Cardiff and, ha- and have a good life. I, 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 I don't know for sure, but I'm pretty sure I knew. It's probably part of the reason why I, why I was bullied was because I, I, I kind of didn't fit in, and I knew that my time in Cardiff was was temporary. That, that might be part of the reason why they didn't, people didn't like me. So, uh, thank you so much for doing this. Uh, what, so, people need to go and see Butterf- uh, listen to Butterfly Effect. Mm-hmm. Say the name of the movie again. Uh, Okja. Well, those are my two most recent things. The How do you spell Okja? O K J A. Okay. And and yeah, the Butterfly Effect, which is now like on iTunes and everywhere else. And what else? Do we, well, everything. Yeah. says publicly shamed. Yeah. All of it. The books and the movie Frank, which I co-wrote. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Cool. Uh, do you want to plug anything else? No, I, no, I, I'm no. No. Okay. Cool. Um, that's kind of it. Okay. Well, thank you so much for doing this. Thanks, Sophie. I hope I hope this has been okay. I, I think it was lovely. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for listening, and thank you to John Ronson for being part of this. And I keep forgetting to say this, but one of the things that makes this podcast great and you as an audience or as listeners is that you tend to go on twitter and tweet at the guests and tell them how amazing they were it means everything please remember to do that it it's because i it just means the world they take the time out of their busy schedules to do this podcast so you help a lot by doing that you help a lot by tweeting about the podcast in general by telling your friends Uh, Word of mouth is the most important thing. Leaving five-star reviews on iTunes helps me out. And going to patreon.com forward slash Mopod really helps me out. That's where you donate however much you feel like giving. It is free. This podcast is free. But also, this is between you and me. Like, we make this happen. I couldn't do this. I wouldn't have time. I wouldn't be able to afford to do this if it wasn't for your donation. So this is... We're all in this together. And I thank you so deeply. The people who give more than $5 per episode uh, become friends of the podcast, meaning I will butcher their name at the end of this episode. Also, I will remember their names forever. When I meet you out there in the real world and you say, hello, my name is Marnie Biles. I'm like, Marnie Biles, I remember you. I say your name all the time. So that is what's happening now. So please uh, help me in thanking these amazing heroes who make this podcast happen. Uh, I want to say a huge thank you to... Kathy Draxelbauer, Robert Knowles, Eve Winkworth, Marnie Biles, Phil Vapolis, Rachel Furley, Zoe Cumberland, George Pearson, Marbles Loss, Joe C., Cecil Fjeltun, uh, Rachel Hemsley, Helena Thomas, So Super Awesome.com, clever, clever, Mari Fraser, Lucy, Eileen Olofsson, Aria Jane, Susie Tyler, Rosie Evans, Rachel Craftman, Kirsten Davidson, Purdy Patterson, Steph Ream, Ruth Harvey, Jane Young, Bethany Dahlstrom, Katie Hatfield, Robin Cabot, James Frew, Karen Threthaway, Russell Hughes, Ida Sigal Larsen, Inga Ellingson, Caleb Melchior, Dr. Boda Seigel Returns, Jessica Stuhlfire, Emma Chan, Kathy Beveridge, uh, Emma Walton, Andy Walker, Geraldine Nascimento, Claire, Danny Beckett, Fiona Richardson, Claire Lamb, 
Grace Suter, Kat Piller, Harold Van Dyke, Eleanor, Sarah Ferreira, Eikerseth, and Daniel Reifersch. <laughs> thank you. I want to thank you all so, so much for making this happen. Thank you to Sarah Garvey for producing this episode, Bailey Leonard for writing and recording the jingle, to Linda Brinkhouse for the logo, and to the Phoenix Artist Club and Peter Dunbar for letting me record episodes there. I will speak to you next Wednesday. Thank you. Bye. Mm-hmm.